Maya. Hopefully y'all may have PowerPoint in a minute. The computer is restarting right now, so. Obadiah. Theme of Obadiah is the doom of Edom and the deliverance of Zion. The doom of Eden and the deliverance of Zion. In Obadiah, we'll begin in verse number one, only 21 verses to the book of Obadiah. <clears throat> but an important um an important book, an important message, an important prophet. It says, The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. I love the way Obadiah starts this. We have heard a rumor from the Lord. We've heard a rumor. Um, let's talk about for a minute this man Obadiah. We don't know anything about him other than his name. <clears throat> his name Obadiah means servant or worshiper of Yahweh. And we know he was that. He wrote possibly during the reign of Jehoram, king of Judah. There were he, He's writing about an invasion that takes place um, by some foreign country, it invades, and the Edomites actually help engage with and help their <clears throat> um, their invaders. Um, many people jump on immediately, as I did when I started studying Obadiah, that this would have been the Babylonian invasion, that it was talking about the Babylonian captivity. Um, my dad challenged me. He thought it was from a different time period. And anyway, the more I began to study it out, so I thought he was a contemporary with Jeremiah, but the more I studied it out, the more my dad and um, um, John MacArthur together convinced me otherwise. But so I, I think it was sometime around 848 to 841 B.C., there was actually a Philistine invasion. We find it in 2 Chronicles chapter 21, <clears throat> beginning at verse number 8. There was an invasion by Arabians and the Philistines working together, and they actually took some captives from Jerusalem. And that seems to line up better with some of the things that he says here. In fact, sort of seeming to indicate that um, at the end of the book, seems to indicate that possibly the captives were taken to the south. And so if that was the case, it would definitely make sense that it was the Arabian invasion <clears throat> and not um, the Babylonian invasion. It's also helpful to realize that the Edomites had a chance to get involved in this, and if it was um, Arabians that came up, they would have come from the south and so probably would have come through Edom, giving them the opportunity to join in for the invasion. So probably 848, somewhere around there. Um, so that would have put Obadiah 
as possibly, unless Joel beat him to it, possibly the first of the minor prophets, of the writing prophets, that would have made him a contemporary with Elijah and Elisha. Definitely with Elisha there. He was writing to um, the southern kingdom of Judah, and he does not address them here, but as we see, as we read through the book, he keeps mentioning Zion. And so that would tell us that um, he is addressing the southern kingdom and not the northern kingdom. The name Edom literally means red. And if you find, if you go back to Genesis chapter 25, Genesis chapter 25, we have the beginning of the Edomites. Genesis 25 and verse number 30, it says, And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom. And I think it's interesting because when Esau was born, it mentions him being red, and it also mentions him being hairy, and Esau means hairy. Um, But he is not named Esau because of his red complexion or his red hair, whatever the case was there. Um, He's named Edom, rather, He's named Edom after the red pottage that he sold his birthright for. And so here he becomes the leader of this nation. And it's really interesting. Hopefully we'll have some pictures up on the screen in a minute. But the territory that Esau moved to and established his kingdom is very red. If you've ever been around Moab, Utah, it looks like Moab, Utah. Um, The dirt is very red. The hills are very red. We know that they were a cliff-dwelling people. If you look at verse number um, three, the pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? So they were a people who lived up in the mountains, um, either at the, either in um, Petra, modern-day Petra, or either they were in the mountain overlooking Petra. Regardless, they lived in that red land, which is now belongs to the country of Jordan. So the next thing I want us to look at in introduction to Obadiah is the historic struggle there was a historic struggle between the Israelites and the Edomites, and it began in Genesis. But if we look at verse 6 for a moment, um, some say that verse 6 is the key verse to understanding the book. In verse 6, it says, How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought up? How are the things of Esau searched out? You know, in Malachi, um, Malachi makes the comment. He said that God said, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And J. Vernon McGee said that the key to understanding why God hated 
Jacob was found in the book of Obadiah. He points out that God had not said that when the boys were born. God did not say that at any point as far as we see in their lifetime, but it was after the destruction of Obadiah, uh, sorry, the, after the destruction of Edom had been declared that God said he hated Esau, and he believes that, and I, I've listened to his teaching on it. He has some really good lessons on Obadiah. But J. Vernon McGee pointed out that he believes that if you want to understand the verse, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. He said the place to go to is the book of Obadiah, and that it explains God's um, dealings with the Edomites and helps us understand that verse. But if we're going to understand the struggle between the two nations, we have to go back to Genesis 25. Genesis chapter 25, <coughs> and in verse 23, um, their mother is told, um, verse 23, here we go. Rebecca's told, and the Lord said unto her, two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. I think it's interesting. We, in our culture, we look at a baby being born, and we look at the individual. With these two, and sometimes in Scripture, God spoke to a woman who is with child and speaks directly about the child itself. But here, God does not refer to them as individuals, does not refer to them as children, does not refer to them as babies, but refers to them already in the womb as nations, because God knew what was coming. God is sovereign, and he knew already what was going on. He knew this was the start of two nations. And so he tells her that. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red all over like an hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. Here they go. It's already starting. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. So he, they, he goes on to describe the differences in these two guys. But what I want us to see here is that even as they were being born, mom is told there's two nations as they come out, Jacob grabs the hill of his brother, and this struggle begins. Later in chapter 25, um, we see the struggle continuing as, um, beginning at verse 29, um, Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with the same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom, or literally red. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. And what profit shall the birth, this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. 
And then, of course, you go on reading in the story, and it's always comical to me when Esau gets mad at his brother over the whole thing. And, I mean, his brother could have been generous and just given him something to eat. Um, but Jacob, the one who had started out by grabbing his brother by the hill, is grabbing him again, and um, things just heat up from there. If you go to Numbers chapter 20, we're not going to read there right now, but as the children of Israel were making their wilderness wandering, as they're headed to the promised land, they tried to pass through the land of Edom, and the Edomites refused to let them go through the land, and as a result, the um, Hebrews were discouraged, but when they were settling the land, God told them to be kind to their brothers, the Edomites. But nonetheless, the Edomites wouldn't even let Israel pass through the land. Um, in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we find that Saul had to fight Edom. Um, and so there were battles with the Edomites. <laughs> 2 Samuel chapter 8, we find David conquered the Edomites, so he overcomes them. He takes um, possession of their land, makes it part of <clears throat> the kingdom of Israel, which I believe one day they will possess all of that land again. Then we find that Solomon occupied Edom. He continued the occupation, 2 Samuel chapter 8. And in verse 14, it tells us that he stationed his navy there. They built ships at um, uh, Izan Geber, which is one of the tips. There's the two fingers of the Red Sea come out. The shorter tip, right at the tip, is a city. And um, in that city, Solomon um, had his ships built where they could go to far lands and bring back goods and supplies for his kingdom. The struggle continued on through the years as Edom fought against King Jehoram and were successful and won their freedom. Then they fought against Amaziah. They fought against Ahaz, King Ahaz as well. Now, eventually, after these, this prophecy and other Old Testament prophecies had been made against Edom, um, the Assyrian Empire came in and controlled the Edomite kingdom. They were then destroyed by the Babylonians after they had um, destroyed Jerusalem. They were then driven from their lands by the Nabataeans. And I think it's interesting that God used a people, the Nabataeans, to finally drive them out. A people who we know nothing really about. Um, in fact, I was doing some reading this week about the Nabataeans, and um, they were some type of an Arab people showed up, and um, there had been such disarray in the nation um, caused by the Babylonian invasion and everything and those wars that they um, came in and just took over the land and pushed the Edomites um, northern toward the border of Israel. Um, and then by the Greek period, they're called Idumeans, and we find a few of them following Christ in the New Testament Gospels. And um, the Nabataeans had driven them out. The Nabataeans built um, Petra, that city that's carved into the mountains. Um, but they built that on Edomite land. And even after the Edomite nation is destroyed and they're driven from their heartland, 
there was still an Edomite, one of the, the, well, the last influential Edomite tried to kill Christ. If you look in Matthew chapter 2, and you see a certain Bible character who was an Idumean, he was an Edomite. Matthew chapter 2 and verse number 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he was mocked of the wise men, was exceeding wroth and sent forth and slew all the children that were in Bethlehem and in all the coasts thereof from two years old and under, according to the time that he had diligently inquired of the wise men. So the, the struggle between Israel and Edom continued when Christ was born in Bethlehem, and Herod, one of the last major Edomites, um, tried to have the Messiah killed. And so that's pretty much biblically the end. There was one other um, man who ruled from the Edomite lands um, in 2 Corinthians. He's mentioned, and um, Paul actually escapes him. He, his headquarters were in Petra, but he was not an Edomite. The Edomites had already been run out. So by the death of Herod, that's the last we see of the Edomites um, in the scriptures. So let's get to the next part as we get into this passage itself. We're going to look at the four prongs of judgment, God's judgment on Edom. Number one is his pride, and we'll look at these in detail in just a minute, and I think I'm seeing PowerPoint starting to show up on the, computer, on the pulpit here. Number one, his pride. Number two, God dealt with his alliances. Number three, his wisdom. Number four, his strength. Let's look at these in detail here. Um, if you look beginning at verse number two, <clears throat> at verse number two, we have his pride. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. So Obed, Obadiah is addressing, is, is giving this message at a time where the Edomites have helped their enemies to take over their land, who've helped take away some of their people. And we'll look at it in just a minute at some of the horrible things that the um, Edomites had done to the Hebrews. But they're getting this message after this is over with and after they've been so horribly betrayed by their brothers, the Edomites. And he comes along here and he starts to tell them they're going to be made small among the heathen. He's already speaking past tense. I have made thee small among the heathen. And that was the case. Today, you cannot find any Edomites in the world. If you find someone who is a descendant of the Edomites, they are only a partial descendant. Um, they were driven away. Um, and if you're going to find one, you're probably going to find some Arab person that is a very, very small percentage Edomite in their bloodline. Um, they have been made very small among the heathen. You can't even find Edomite in existence. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. And I think this really gets to the root of Esau himself, the individual Esau, the root of his problem being pride. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? 
go. So uh, last lesson, we talked about the kingdom of Edom being destroyed. It was one of the nations that Amos said was going to be destroyed. Let's go back a little ways here. I just want you to see the land of Edom and how interesting it is. Look at the color of the land. Edom means red. They moved and settled in a red, very red land. Okay, let's get back to where we were here. With Saul, with David. So here we have the Edomite territory down here that David conquered and Solomon kept down here at Ezon Geber is where um, Solomon had his port um, and built his navy ships. Try this again. There we go. Can somebody push this forward back there? There we go. Thank you. Okay. So God deals with his pride. Those who dwelt up on the mountain, those who dwelt in the rocks, they're going to be brought down to the ground. Verse 4. Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves came to thee, if robbers by night, that how art thou cut off, would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? So his point is, if if thieves had broken in and thieves had stolen from you, the thieves would have left something behind. They're not going to take every single thing. But he's showing the severity of the judgment of God that's coming on them. Everything's going to be gone. They're going to be utterly destroyed. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are the hidden things sought up? Go to verse number seven, and we find God's dealings with his alliances. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. They've laid a trap for you. There is none understanding in him. So those other nations that they had made alliances with over time He said they are going to turn against them. They're going to lay traps for them. If you think about it, um, different times in history, when alliances turned against another nation, um, and sometimes that very alliance was actually a trap. I think about what Hitler did um, in Europe. You know, any country he made an alliance with, he would invade shortly thereafter. I mean, Poland, wasn't it the day after he makes his alliance with them that he invaded. Um, I, I, growing up, we would watch old World War II documentaries and, and newsreels and stuff from that were made during the war, during World War II. And I remember as a kid watching, oh, okay, watching the timeline, him make a, a treaty with a country and then him invade, and then go to another European country, make a treaty with them, and then invade. 
And I started watching that. And as a teenager, I started figuring out, okay, and then, oh, he's sitting down with the Polish and he's making, and I'm sitting there going, no, 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 no. Don't sign the treaty. Don't sign the treaty. He's going to invade tomorrow. I mean, I knew the story before it happened. Why? Because I'd watched what Hitler had done and seen, seen it. I knew what was coming when I saw the documentary the first time. I knew he was going to invade the next day. Why? How had he been, he been treating his others? So he goes in, makes an alliance, and it was really just a trap. He said, even your friends are not going to stand by you. The people you think are your friends are actually trapping you. So the Edomites were not going to find any security in their neighbors. Number three, God deals with their wisdom, so-called. Verse 8, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? Apparently, the Edomites were known during the time period for the wisdom that they had. You know, you look at the Greeks in history, and they were known as such a wise people because they sat around and thought a lot, you know. And um, think about Barney Fife when Andy, they were explaining to Opie, what centa meant, you know, centipede. Um, they were talking about a century, it's a hundred years, and Barney was explaining those, um, those smart Greeks sitting around talking about, you know, a hundred. Anyway, so he starts using the word centa, and um, Andy said, yeah, a centipede, a bug with a hundred legs. And Barney said, no, you quit lying to that boy where I'm trying to teach him something. He said all them Greeks with all their knowledge, he said they wouldn't sit around talking about bugs with a hundred legs on them. So centipede couldn't mean a bug with a hundred legs because Greeks were too smart to talk about bugs. But the wisdom of the Edomites, they were along the king's highway. It was a trade route of the time period between um, Asia and North Africa with Europe. And so as these different people from these different cultures would come along this this road that would go through Edom, they could sit down and have conversations and, oh man, learn stuff from all over. And um, their wisdom would grow and their philosophy could philosophies could increase. But he said, no, your wisdom is going to be destroyed. I'm destroying your wise men. And then he continues, and God attacks their strength. In verse 9, and thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the Mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. And so then he describes, in the end of this, he describes the reason for this. He said there's going to be basically destruction for destruction for what you have done. Look at verse 10. For thy violence... For thy violence, they had been hateful. They had been violent to Israel against thy brother Jacob. Shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. So God is going to bring destruction. The picture that I have here, it's tombs from the land of the Edomites. It is um, tombs of the Nabataeans, I believe, but nonetheless, that's what is left today of the land of the Edomites. A bunch of tombs is what's left today. And it's not even their tombs. It's the tomb of the nation that took their land after them. There was utter destruction. 
to the land of Edom. And then he goes on to describe their crimes against their brother. Look in verse number 10. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. So as these, uh, uh, probably those Arabians that we mentioned earlier, when they entered in and the Philistines and they began to plunder Jerusalem, they began to take some of them captive. He said, you acted as one of them. You helped them out. You are guilty right along with them. Look at verse 12. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah. Look at that. They rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. They got excited when the invasion took place. They rejoiced that Judah was being taken over by another nation. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. So he says, you came into the gate. What did they do? Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. So they had gone in, and while they're being plundered by the Arabians and Philistines, the Edomites come in and they start coming into the city and they start stealing some stuff. It's a perfect opportunity. What happens when riots take place here in America? People, uh, they take the opportunity, all the chaos. I'm just going to go in and get something. I don't have to worry about anything. The police are worried about fighting somebody else. I just go in and take what I want. After hurricanes, what do we see in the South from time to time when there's a hurricane? Stores are plundered. People go in. I remember... Um, after Hurricane Katrina, it was ridiculous. Some of the things people were going in and stealing. Why? Just because they could. Here's an opportunity for the Edomites. They're being plundered. Let's go in and let's steal some stuff. Verse 14, neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. So as some of the Hebrews were escaping, they started blocking the roads. They set up blockades and began to stop the Hebrews from being able to escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of his distress. So when they had an opportunity and they found a Jew, they would just take them and turn them over to the enemy. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. Now, when we were discussing Amos, we talked about the day of the Lord. This is the time of God's wrath on the earth at the end of the age. But there are times in the Old Testament that we see a, a local day of the Lord, God bringing his judgment on a nation. Those often foreshadow the final judgment um, in the last days. Some believe that the Edomites are going to be raised up um, at the last day. They'll be reinstated as a nation. I believe when God cut them off, he cut them off and they're done. I believe that the further prophecies about the land of Edom will actually be fulfilled when God destroys the nation who now dwells in the land. There are some of those Old Testament and New Testament prophecies about end times 
that I don't think have to be fulfilled by the name of the nation who was there at the time of the writing, but can be fulfilled by the nation such as today the Jordanians, who will likely one day rise up against Israel in the last days and join the Antichrist and anyway, themselves be wiped out and destroyed and that land be possessed by Israel one day. Regardless, he's talking about a day of the Lord, a day of severe judgment. Now, he says the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. The day is coming where God will judge all the heathen nations. Then he says, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. What you did to Israel is going to happen to you. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance. So we see these four prongs of God's judgment. God deals with their pride. He deals with their neighbors. He deals with their wisdom. He deals with their strength. But then here in this verse, we see a transition and God begins to deal with the land of Judah. And we see four prongs of restoration. Number one, we see the word deliverance. Then second, holiness. Then we see the word possession. And then I'm calling the fourth victor and we'll see what that is in just a minute. But let's look at this first one, deliverance. As I've said many times before, this Hebrew word can also be translated salvation. Salvation shall come out of Zion. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance or shall be salvation. He speaks further of this in verse 21. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. We talk about who actually owns the land. There's still the struggle today. Do the Jews own it? Do the Palestinians own it? Who owns the land? Well, Obadiah makes it clear right here. It's the Lord's land. And one day, all of that, what belongs to the, quote, Palestinians and what belongs to the Jews and what belongs to, at that time, the Edomites, today, the um, Palestinians, uh, sorry, the um, Jordan, Jordanians, it is God's land, and he will ultimately possess it. And I think it's interesting, so far as we have studied these four minor prophets, every one of them is ending the same way. They're going through their message, judgment, 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 judgment. They get to the end, but God's going to restore Israel. What a precious, precious promise. God is restoring his people. We get here, he's talking about the destruction of Edom, how terrible it will be or was now past tense. Um, but how does he end? Oh, there's deliverance for God's people. Then in verse 17, he talks about holiness. Look how he continues. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness. As far as I understand, that could also be translated, it shall be holy. God is going to make that a holy place once again. I don't know if that's been fulfilled yet. Maybe it was fulfilled when Christ came and when Christ was crucified. 
I don't know. I have a feeling that that's still yet partially to be fulfilled. Because we know that we've read the whole story and we've read Amos and we've read these other prophets. We've seen that God will restore his people. There will be strong, full, permanent salvation arise in Zion one day. It will be made holy by our God. Then we see the word possession. Look at verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. You broke in. You stole from them. You went into the city, and you plundered them. He said, but they're going to own their possessions. And then um, if we skip verse 18, because we're going to come back to that in just a second, if you go down to verse 19, he continues with this topic of possessions. And they of the south shall um, possess the Mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath, and the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Now, nobody knows exactly where um, Sepharad is. Um, there is. There are different opinions of it. Some say it's in Turkey. They were taken away to Turkey. Um, Others mention some other places. Um, some say, uh, some of the early Bible commentators said it was Spain. They were taken away to Spain. I'm not sure why the Arabians took them to Spain. But anyway, um, the different people have different opinions. The, the, it all boils down to nobody knows. It was some ancient city, probably Arabian city, where they had been taken to south of Jerusalem. They had been taken down. And he said, oh, they're going to turn around and they're going to possess the land of the enemy. It's going to belong to them. But then we have this word victors. Victors, verse 18. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. Now let's pause here for just a moment. Keep your finger here. And if you look at Zechariah chapter 12, we have a similar statement. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse number 6. In that day will I make the governors of Judah like an hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf. And they shall devour all the people round about on the right hand and on the left, and Jerusalem shall be inhabited again in her own place, even in Jerusalem. He said, I will make them a fire, and they are going to devour their enemies. So this idea of being made a fire is saying they are going to be the victors. They're going to win. They're going to consume their enemies. And possibly this follows this idea of the day of the Lord and possibly the final day because we know that they will, um, when God fights for them, they are going to turn around and consume their enemies around them and will um, destroy their enemies. Look at his 
explanation of this. Um, they will be a flame. Uh, continue in verse 18 of Obadiah. And the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. So perhaps the day will come, well, we know, we know the day will come where they will destroy Israel, will fight again against the inhabitants of the ancient land of Edom and completely annihilate them. But he says here that the house of Esau themselves will be utterly destroyed. There will not be any of them left. And I want to read again the last verse. And Savior shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Now, I know there's a little bit more of this that will probably be fulfilled in the future. But most of this prophecy has already taken place. Let's make a comparison. Here we have Jerusalem. Here on the right, we have Petra, which was built likely by the Nabataeans, um, who had taken over the land of the Edomites when they drove them out at the end of their kingdom. Let's look at a comparison of the two. Today, Zion is inhabited. Edom is not. Yes, there are some Palestinians there in part of their land, but right here where they built, there's nothing but ruins left of the people that followed them. Today, Jews live in Jerusalem. Jordanians own the territory of Edom. Today, there are approximately 15.2 million Jews worldwide. There are no Edomites. God has already won that battle. God has already destroyed that people group. Why? Because they cursed Israel. They rose up against God's people, and to make it worse, they were brothers. And God destroyed them. And so, what is the message of Obadiah? The message of Obadiah was, oh, there is doom for Eden, for Edom, rather. But there is deliverance for Zion. God, again, one day will fight for his people. He will set up his kingdom in Jerusalem. What an awesome time that will be. And I get more and more confident in that statement because the more I study the minor prophets and I see what God has already done, and I see these things were prophesied before they happened, and then they happened, and it gives me more and more confidence in the Word of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your Word and how powerful it is. Lord, we thank you that we can believe your promises because we have seen you keep your promises in the past. Lord, and although it was a terrible thing for the nation of Edom to be destroyed, Lord, we realize that their destruction came because of their sin. Their destruction came because they rose up in violence against your people. And Lord, I just pray that you would help every one of us to remember that deliverance is coming. Lord, we see there is still trouble with that first group of people, with those descendants of Ishmael. Still today, yesterday, we saw that um, terrible attack, the terrorist attack there in Jerusalem. But yet, Lord, as we hear those shots from the old city, we are reminded of your promise that you will rebuild, that you will defend your land. 
And Lord, you will restore your people again one day. And Lord, we thank you for these promises of the Old Testament. Lord, I pray that they would continue to strengthen and to build our faith. Lord, help us to trust you more. Lord, we thank you for your promises. We thank you that you did send a Savior, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. We thank you for giving us redemption. We thank you for um, bringing us into the promises and making us a part of your family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.